Mark, how are you? Joe, I have a question for you. That's unlike you? I know. <laughs> What's your favorite extreme sport? It's got to be extreme, like with an X. My favorite extreme sport? Extreme. Oh, goodness. That, uh, you're, you know what? Your questions are getting harder and harder. <laughs> I'm just getting more desperate. Yeah, extreme. Well, I, I saw something on an episode of Lost in Space recently, like the new version of Lost in Space. Okay. And what it is, is you tether yourself to a large balloon and then elevate yourself into the stratosphere. And then once you're up there, you, you basically, you jump. And then, oh, it's yeah, it's like, and then you're like free falling from space. That's interesting. Yeah, I'm presumably they're wearing some kind of pressure suit, and they're prepared for that. All the things you're going to face. Yes, yes. What about a parachute? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that takes the challenge out of it, Brian. (laughs) Does it open? Yeah. Yeah. Not not in the stratosphere. (laughs) I guess not. Now, now our guest today, Brian Weibel, is someone who I think would do that. That's why I asked this question, yeah. Oh, ask me, ask me. <laughs> Hanging out, yeah. What's your favorite extreme sport? Brian? Well, obviously rock climbing, but I, I did yeah. just get back from Mexico where I was scuba diving with sharks. It was wonderful. Nice. Like, it's all theoretical when you ask me what extreme sport, but when you ask Brian Weibel, it's not theoretical. He actually does it. <laughs> I had a feeling, yeah. Why, why did you have that feeling just from- I think I saw a picture of Brian hanging off a cliff or something, and I figured it wasn't a metaphor- it's fairly normal. So I had a feeling. And what kind of sharks were you swimming with? Oh, we swam with a variety of rays, including an eagle-spotted ray. And oh, wow. he was enormous, like more than two meters across. And there was a couple of nurse sharks, of uh, also six or seven feet long, just swam by kind of, you know, they looked a bit bored, actually. Bits of <laughs> diver hanging out of their mouths. This kind of thing. <laughs> they, they already fed, so yeah, no danger there. <laughs> yeah, they were full. There were no problem. <laughs> we should get Brian to introduce himself as we okay. like to do. Sure. I'm Brian, uh, Brian Weivel. I'm very old and have done an awful lot of stuff in my life. <laughs> How old are you? <laughs> but young at heart. Well, I'm 10 years older than it says on Facebook. There's a clue. <laughs> because I cheated on Facebook. I didn't want people to know how old I was. <laughs> Is Methuselah in the pull down when you can choose, you know, your age there? Yeah. <laughs> You're not going to tell us how old you are. Well, I no, because oh. I mean, I'm married to your sister. You would think that she's made a great mistake <laughs> if I really told you. you know? <laughs> <laughs> that, could, that could be the end of the relationship. How old are you? What? <laughs> so, Brian is uh, – normally we don't introduce our guests, but I will introduce you. I'll make an exception in this case a little bit. Brian is my brother-in-law, but a very creative person and for that reason belongs on this podcast. But I will say that although he may consider himself old, he is in fact one of the most youthful people I know. Thank you. That's what your sister says too, but she doesn't put it quite like that. <laughs> but yeah, you are, uh, you, are uh, you have climbed mountains. You do uh, tons of rock climbing. You're, you're extremely uh, fit and, uh, and you mentioned um, scuba diving. And yeah, so you're extremely youthful and energetic uh, as far as I'm concerned. Well, and, thanks, uh, and very creative because uh, you know, one of the reasons that we invited you onto this podcast is because you are an author. Tell us about your, your writing. Well, I've written uh, two books, one of which was published by Thunderchild Publishing. It's kind of in the time slip 
naval history era. And I like to say it's the intersection between Diana Gabaldon's Outlander and Patrick O'Brien's Master and Commander. Kind of hits that sweet spot where I bring back travelers from the modern times to go and one of them wants to try and change history, make Napoleon win so that Canada speaks French in the 21st century. Something Bundy Day. And I, so I've read this twice, and it is a fantastic book, and I have no doubt that the next one will be even better, oh, it's much which I know you're working on. My, my last book uh, is, is about uh, traveling through multiple dimensions. One of the ways they can define the world is if it's a Napoleon world or not. So whether Napoleon won in that one. Oh, you can always lovely. tell by the alcohol. If there's whiskey, yes. then he didn't win. If there's nothing but uh, brandy, yeah, he won. <laughs> i got to read that book. We should compare notes. Well, uh, Joe mentioned that he wanted me to talk about some something artistic. Uh, one of the other things that I do, probably not half as well as Joe, is uh, play the piano. I, his sister actually is a piano teacher. So uh, I did learn quite a lot from her. In fact, um, she taught me for an entire six months before she said I should go and find a new piano teacher uh, or a new wife. And I figured that uh. finding a new piano teacher was <laughs> slightly easier. You know, so I, I chose that option. You'll be pleased to know. And what the artistic thing that I would picked for today is, is Beethoven, because in my latest book, uh-huh. My hero, heroine, I should say, uh, goes back to 1798, where she ends up in Vienna in a big spy story and actually has to play the piano in front of Beethoven in order to get these secret plans, which are hidden in the red folder sitting on his piano. Now, is there any particular piece from Beethoven that you want to talk about? Oh, yes. Well, one of my favorite, uh, the piano sonatas are absolutely wonderful, all 32 of them. But the pathetique for me has a a very distinct meaning. And he just so happens he wrote the Pathetique in 1798. Uh, the second movement is the slightly easier movement, which I have managed to be able to play. I'm not saying that well, but, you know, I can get through it. And my heroine plays the piano an awful lot better than me, fortunately. So she is able to play it in front of Beethoven. There's a slight snag. He hasn't actually yet written it. So there is a, a <laughs> bit of an issue during this um, mm-hmm. this session. I don't know if you find that in your books as well, Mark, when people are just a little ahead of their time in that sense. Yeah, they're not really time travel books, no. <laughs> But but uh, I have written a few alternate history books, so in those or okay. stories, so in those stories for sure. Then yeah, you, you got to get the things exactly right, and you could mess up very badly. Well, it's very interesting. Although it was not actually published till 1799, he wrote it in 1798. But it turns out that uh, he was still working on it when she plays it to him, so he is familiar with it, but not in the exact form, of course, that she plays it to him. And so it, she's maybe helped him refine the composition. Exactly. Well, there's a, a guy called Swafford, who's an American author, who's written an absolutely wonderful book on Beethoven. And uh, there's a little quote I put in there, because it turns out that the, the pianist Charles Neat, an English pianist, said in, I think it was something like 1815, when he met Beethoven, that Beethoven has told him that his deafness comes from meeting with a singer and a quarrel that subsequently arose, which he fell to the floor, had a terrible fit, and his deafness uh, was marked from that point in 1798. So, of course, huh. that's this incident um, 
occurs in my book because uh, our, my heroine is actually introduced to him as a singer. And when he hears a play, uh, the second movement of the Pathetique uh, Sonata, he actually goes crazy and has a bit of a fit at her, falls to the floor. And she is responsible for his deafness, in fact. Well, that anticipates that question. I was going to say, is this pre or before or after he, he lost his hearing? So, well, And it's a great, it's a plot point even. That's it's a, wonderful. It's a plot point. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Of course, she feels terrible. Biggest faux pas in history, she calls it. <laughs> is this the adagio from Sonata Pathetique or is that something different? Yeah, yeah this is the slow move. Yeah, this is the adagio. Right. Okay. Now, is that the, can you hum a few bars for us? Boom, 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 boom. No, it goes like <laughs> I could, but I'm a little hoarse today. I've been singing Palestrina for the last uh, three months, which is very hard to sing. My wife got in, your sister got me into it, and it's really actually been very hard on my on my voice. I've had to actually resort to having singing lessons. It's terribly hard on I'm the I'm sorry, pocket. you've been singing what? Uh, Palestrina. What is, what is that? Oh, he's an uh, old guy that wrote amazing choral music and uh he wrote it in a way that's very if you're if you play modern piano and you read this music you'll be horrified by it none of the bars add up to the right numbers and and anyway they didn't have bars and it's, yeah it's, it's before they had bar. that that it's technology had, yeah exactly and so why have you been singing this she made me my sister made you <laughs> So, so she wouldn't teach you piano anymore, and then she made you start singing 14th century choral music. We, she wanted to join the Linden Singers here in Victoria, which are a very highfalutin choir, and I had to do an audition to get in. So I knew I would never, they'd never pass me. And by some miracle, I mean, they obviously accepted her. She's a real musician. But by some miracle, they accepted me too, which meant I had to suddenly put my money where my mouth was, as it were. So immediately went out and got singing lessons. Okay, okay. Let's get back to the piece that you've chosen. What have you learned? Well, I've learned a lot about Beethoven. And actually, I feel very much more sorry for the guy than I than ever before, because he spent most of his life sick. And he battled with all sorts of issues like being deaf which was for most musicians i think would be the end of their careers but uh, didn't seem to slow beethoven down at all and he uh, never had much success with women people call him ugly but all the paintings i've seen don't seem to portray him as that ugly but definitely he didn't pay too much attention to his appearance and, um, you know, the usual things of hygiene that perhaps uh, um, the modern composer might be more concerned about. I feel that he had a very, very hard life. Obviously, he was an amazing genius in in the sen in the modern sense, not in the original German mm -hmm. sense, apparently, so Mr. Swafford tells us. But I think he had a terribly hard time of it and came through with music that has lasted for 250 years and is probably going to last another 250 years. Yeah, I, I, I think he's an amazing composer. My guy is Mozart. I wrote a book about Mozart. So. Oh, really? So yeah. I, I, what, what, yeah, so my question actually was about the piano because one of the things I remember reading about when I was doing my research on Mozart was when he started really, uh, there weren't really modern pianos yet. No. They were just inventing them. But by the time Beethoven came around, they were modern pianos. Is that right? More like the modern piano. I mean, the pianoforte yeah. 
probably yeah. missing a couple of octaves, you know, when you when you look at the piano that uh, Beethoven played. Uh, here in Victoria, there is a recreation of a Beethoven piano, and it actually has the sustained pedal on, on your knees, little flaps on your knees. Really? And it's, wow. it's missing a couple of, of octaves, but I've, um, I, have actually, I have actually played it. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. So how long after Mozart was Beethoven? Oh, they met. They did. They, they were, yeah, they, they lived in the same era. Mozart lived between 1756 and 1791. So he, okay. he, he was alive for the first couple of years of the French Revolution. So he wouldn't have seen yeah. the rise of Napoleon. Napoleon was a general. Even in 1798, he was off um, battling in um, North Africa, in Egypt, uh, trying to find a way to um, attack the British in India which he was defeated at the Battle of Acre. But uh, he came back in 1799 and then took over the, the Directoire. And, um, mm -hmm. Sorry, this is Beethoven did all this? No, no, Beethoven did do that. <laughs> Beethoven was a very talented guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, and that was after he'd already basically conquered Italy. Oh, yeah. You know. he, con he conquered yeah. Italy. So he was... Right. Not Beethoven. <laughs> Okay, so in, in your work of fiction, your protagonist met Beethoven in 1798. Yes. So how long did, uh, when did, when did Beethoven die? 1827. Beethoven did meet uh, Mozart, but I think it was, uh, as far as Mozart was concerned, he was, um, Beethoven was some young hotshot, and there were lots of young hotshots around. So Mozart wasn't overly impressed. Now tell us more about the piece that you're interested in? Well, the, the piece is known to be one of Beethoven's most beautiful melodies. And that's certainly something that I take from it. It is, it is an astoundingly beautiful melody. Of course, the sonata form was well established when it came out. It's um, his eighth piano sonata. And he wrote two others that year as well. But this was the first of what was known as the Grand Sonata. And it certainly was a step up from everything else. And if I had my piano here, I could play the first couple of chords of the first movement, which are, you know, real, I mean, they're not quite Beethoven's fifth, but they're on that same dramatic line. Just uh, amazing with the wonderful timing on these giant chords that he, he opens the first movement with. But the second movement is much softer, much quieter and uh, has its own little dramas in it, but just pursues this theme. It recapitulates the theme a couple of times, and then in the last section revisits the theme, but this time he's playing it in triplets, which is a challenge for especially amateur pianists like myself to really, really bring that melody out and keep your left hand quiet, which <laughs> is always a problem you know, on the modern piano. Does it have other meaning? Like, was there another layer of meaning for, for Beethoven? In the piece that you know of? For Beethoven? Yeah. Well, let's see, in 1798, an awful lot of his music he was writing to impress various okay. women. Because, and, of course, people that might actually finance him. So, and now, to be clear, he was just in his 20s at this time, Oh, yeah, right? yeah. He was, he was a young man. Yeah. yeah so yeah. it's not like he was, like, you know, 77 years old trying to impress all these. <laughs> yeah. No, no. He was trying to impress women because he, he, he was desperate to find a wife. And that was pretty well true right throughout his time in Vienna. He had some, of course, there's the episode of the immortal beloved, which, uh, has been fictionalized in, in, the, in the movies. 
but uh, it was the only time when there was any real potential for him finding a, a, a real partner uh, that is recorded in history. But And according to Swafford, there were three women who could have been the immortal beloved, and there's a series of letters and so forth that have been preserved. And I can't remember their names, so don't ask me. <laughs> so did he not find a wife then? No, or? never did. At least Mozart got married. So you referenced um, ill health. What, what was the nature of his ill health? Ah, well, that's very interesting. He died of an enormous long list of issues, and people credit his deafness to various things. But he, he did visit brothels and so forth, because it was the only real outlet uh, for him in those days. And um, it is likely that he probably contracted some nasty disease, as well as, well, all the water ran through lead pipes back then. Mm -hmm. So it is highly likely he was severely poisoned by the lead, whether that caused the deafness or not, I'm not sure. I was going to ask a question about, again, I'm thinking about Mozart, my boy, and just comparing mentally and so one of the reasons that, that people attribute his early death to uh, is not poison, as they would have believed in that movie. But um, yeah, yeah, which is a great movie, by the way. Don't it's just just it's just not. Oh yeah, great. is that he spent so much of his life traveling, and that was just such a difficult thing to do, even in Europe to travel because this is before there were trains, right? So you're going by horse if you're lucky. If you're really lucky, you're in a carriage. And so just, just the physical acts of traveling and all of the stuff that you get exposed to from city to city. So did Beethoven do much traveling in his life? I mean, he traveled from – he visited Vienna as a younger man mm -hmm. from Bonn. And then he visited Vienna again and stayed there as when he was uh, slightly older. And never – kept saying he was going to go to England, but never did. Mm -hmm. um, he did travel out of the city, but there was a war going on. Yeah. <laughs> and Napoleon invaded Vienna twice, yeah. I think. <laughs> One of Beethoven's mentors was Haydn. He actually took uh, counterpoint lessons from Haydn. Apparently, he wasn't a great student either. <laughs> but, uh, so there was, and of course, Haydn was the, the big name of the day. But he lived in Vienna. And apparently his house was shelled or shells fell very close to his house. Mm. And he died shortly after Napoleon uh, dropped shells on him. So there you go. Well, that will do it. Now, it's interesting, Mark, that you mentioned Mozart because... It's just because my frame of reference is so strongly associated with them. That's why I'm just... Because I, I know I, I love Beethoven's music as well. I just don't know that much about the man. Well, apparently this piece that, that Brian is bringing forth is believed to have possibly been influenced by the work of Mozart. Really? Oh, interesting. Well, all his, I yeah. think his work was influenced by, by Mozart and by Haydn, by everybody yeah, around him. It would him. be hard he, not to be. He I did mean, something new. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He did something new. He went one beyond. Yeah, if you think about it, I mean, he's, there's, it makes sense that he wouldn't really leave Vienna because that was the center of the world in terms of what was happening with music right then. And it was yeah. for a little while. It was there when Mozart was there and certainly when Beethoven was. So it kind of makes sense that there would be some influence. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're very different composers. One of the things about the, the piano sonatas, if you take one of the later sonatas, it's the D major sonata, and I can't remember which number it is, there's second or third movement, and, and it starts off with this beautiful um, 
minor key rumble in the bass line, which is um, uh, very much one of these arpeggiated uh, basses. And then you, you suddenly get, in the middle of the movement, this kind of middle section where if I'd heard a modern jazz player play the same thing as part of his improvisation, I'd have totally believed it was written in the 21st century or the 20th century. Oh, it's interesting. It's just amazing. These little bits of jazz come out of Beethoven. Of course, huh. they invented a lot of stuff, those guys. That's so great. And I really love that, that the piece is a plot point in the book, your book. That's really, that's such a direct line in terms of the inspiration and the art that it creates. Oh, very, very key. But, but Mark, I'm, I'm intrigued on your book on, what made you write a book on Mozart? Oh no, you've trapped me. <laughs> I have to say that it's because I lived in Prague and I promised I would never say I lived in Prague. Did you set this up with Joe beforehand? Oh, I, I no, lived, we did not I lived uh, down the street, literally, from where he wrote uh, Don Giovanni. He would leave the city really? uh, at the time. So Smikov was the little village. But when I was there, it was part of the city. But but uh, the Bertramko was a little vineyard and, uh, and villa that he retreated to. And that's where he wrote most of Don Giovanni. So I really felt like – and he's – Prague claims him <laughs> as much as Vienna does or Salzburg does. So, so his face is plastered everywhere. So that's what inspired me to use him as a character. Yeah. Ah. Now, Brian may not realize that listeners of this podcast have to drink every time Mark references Shut Prague up. in this podcast. <laughs> I haven't mentioned Prague in at least 10 episodes. It's, I, I figured this was a trap. <laughs> <laughs> so dangerous. As soon as we got into Mozart, I knew Prague was going to come out. <laughs> but now, so Brian, did this piece inspire that section in your novel? Or did you were you writing that section and had to come up with a, a piece and chose this one? Oh, well, um, it was just serendipity. It was already a piece I, I played on the piano and, and absolutely loved it. And would love to be able to play the first movement, but I'm not sure I can get my left hand going fast enough for, <laughs> for page two, you know. But, um, the, uh, I found out, I looked up the publication dates and found out he was writing this in 1798. And it exactly fitted with the timeline that had already been fixed because of the first book. So this is the second, second of the series. And so the, the dates were fixed when she was going to be in Vienna, uh, according to the plot, which is already kind of, um, well, well underway. I, I mean, I don't know how you write, Mark, but I'm definitely a pantser. And I, I love that moment, especially in the first draft when suddenly something unexpected happens because the characters do what they damn well like. And they do something which is so unexpected and, and she goes to Vienna for Christ's sake. What can I do with that? Yeah. Over the mountains in the mail coach, I should point yeah, out. Yeah, that's from Trieste. a tough journey in 1798. Very tough yeah. journey. Um, she does get waylaid by a highwayman. Of course. That's what, that's what happens back then. <laughs> I, uh, I'm a pantser too now. I, now I'm, I used to, I used to plot out a lot more, but now I'm a pantser. And, but even when I was a plotter, or a plotter, some of my critics might say, I would say that those moments when your characters just take a life on their own, they do their own thing, are the best moments. Because that's when you go, oh, I didn't think of that. That's interesting. Okay, that might be a better way to go. <laughs> my characters know yeah, something I don't. I mean, of course they do. Yeah. They do what's in character. Yeah, exactly. You know? <laughs> yeah. 
And, and just for the sake of us, any listeners who may not know, so pants are by the seat of your pants. Right. That's yes. uh, coming up at the plot uh, as you go along, as opposed to working it all out beforehand. Yeah. There's there's two schools, and then there's variations between the two. I saw a pantser plotter alignment chart <laughs> describing, you know, the six or nine different, you know, places you could be in there. Because people sometimes describe themselves oh, as yeah. plantsers now, halfway between a plotter and a pantser. That <laughs> uh, was like a lawful neutral. Yeah, basically or... like the plant, the, okay. the neutrals or the yeah. plantsers, and yes, yeah. <laughs> Now, I should actually, in terms of uh, working out the, the plot of your book, mention that Brian has actually invented software to help authors oh, yeah. do that. Tell us about that, Brian. Oh, well, I, I was finding that my books, especially well, both, both books, had rather complicated plots. I love complicated plots and told from multiple points of view. So you get different takes on what's going on. And these involved plots sometimes had, because of the different characters telling the story, sometimes had jumps in time as well. So things weren't necessarily told linearly in the order in which they occur, because I had several timelines going on at the same time. And it makes for kind of interesting, more interesting reading, in my humble opinion. And so keeping track of it from point of view of the author is really quite an issue. You've got to really have it all organized. So I looked at all the software that was out there, and none of it actually took any notice of what you'd written in your book. All it did was allow you to make notes. And none of them had any kind of notion of chronological order and the order in which the reader read the book. So very much they were written these pieces of software visualize things as the reader would see it. And I figured out, well, actually, I want to visualize these things as the author. I don't care what the reader sees. Well, I do, but I want to see what the author sees uh, because it's not necessarily the way I'm going to tell the story, but it's very important. I know exactly what happens chronologically to every character in the book. So I wrote a visualizer for that and time-stamped every scene so I could change it to chronological or indeed have it come out in the in a visualization that shows what the reader sees. So it's useful for readers too. And it's also the author needs to see how the reader's going to, how it's going to be presented to the reader. And the other visualization I added later was the thought that Actually, there's also story threads. If you imagine Lord of the Rings, mm -hmm. the fellowship or these guys get together and then they all split off and go their separate ways and we follow each story. So the, each one represents a different story thread built on that, around that character. So you can now stamp your scenes with which thread they can belong to. So they could belong to multiple threads. And as you see the threads, you can see how they split and merge. And it's it's really useful if you've got a, a, a complex story. I think it might also be useful for readers who want to later analyze the book to be able to see what the author's thinking was and see how a book might appear in chronological order. So my dream is to get this, although I am distributed, the software is called Scene Wizard. If you go to www.scenewizard.com, you'll probably see hmm. under construction at the moment, but there will be a new release of the software coming out this year. It's all very musical too, isn't it? In the sense that, you know, <laughs> the way that motifs repeat and how you have threads 
in a composition and how they echo and come back. And yeah, that's kind of neat. Oh, yeah, that's, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. Good one. Can I use that in the advertising? Yeah, sure. You can, yeah. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> hey, well, how's, how's the take up been on that? Here in the, on the West Coast, we have something called the Creative Academy, which was started by Eileen Cook, who teaches at the SFU creative writing course in, in Vancouver. Uh, Crystal Hunt and Donna Barker, all great, written some wonderful books, also on craft as well as books on their fiction books. But they started this sort of support group for for authors, and it's grown to the last time that I saw there was uh, about fifteen hundred members. I think for me, it gives me access to all these people who can test out my software. So I've had some pretty good feedback and responses for them. And now we're on a development stage to improve the user interface. All software has to have better user interfaces, but I wanted to improve the user interface to make it more reachable to people who are less nerd-like than I am. (laughs) Being a total geek, (laughs) ex-computer science professor, it's hard for me to understand why people can't want these points. Just code it themselves and figure it out. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah. I I have a question (laughs) for you. Could you? Do you have stuff for characters too? I sometimes have this um, problem where I can't remember the character's eye color. Oh, you know, yes, like, yes. like, is it blue? I'm pretty sure I said blue. You know, those kinds of little details, continuity details <laughs> that eventually you do catch in your edits, but it'd be so much easier just to go, I'll just consult my database and see what it says. Yes, you, you describe each character with all those characteristics. And one of the things that took me all of like 30 seconds to program, which the authors think is the best thing since sliced bread, you can put the date of birth down for every yes. character. Yes. So in any scene, you can see how old they are. Yeah. Now, time travel <laughs> messes that up a bit, I might point out. <laughs> but and, and the other thing that happens is that um, if you're passing artifacts or information, as you do in the spy novel, for example, you can see at any one point exactly who's come into contact with that information. So you're on scene 97, and you want to know who has seen this particular secret document. Uh, you get a list of all the characters who've had contact with it and could have read it. That's fabulous. Is, I find yeah. really useful, you know. Yeah. Now, I, I'm going to drift even further away from, from Beethoven now. <laughs> because we before we started recording this podcast, Brian related to you a story about um, his encounter with the director, Ridley Scott. And, uh, and I think we would be remiss in wrapping up this podcast before letting everybody know about this. And we actually <laughs> mentioned Brian in a previous podcast when we were talking about the creation of the movie Alien. Brian, tell us about your involvement with the movie Alien and your encounter with the director Ridley Scott. I was finished my PhD in computer science and got a job at the Royal College of Art working for a guy called George Mallon, who ran a company called System Simulation. And George was a, is a, a very forward-looking computer guy, simulation guy, and he'd started this company. And one of the things they were really keen on doing was getting computer animation out there because it was pretty primitive in the late 70s. But he'd managed to find negotiate a contract with 20th Century Fox to supply some sequences to, for Alien, which was what was going on on the screens in the uh, spaceship Nostromo. And the first thing you see, of course, is the distress signal comes in from the alien planet. And there's a whole bunch of simulations of 
the orbit of the Nostromo as it comes into uh, come into orbit around the planet. Indeed, land on the planet, and of course that's when all all the trouble starts and things come. In, you know. it's- <laughs> uh, for the listener's benefit, Brian is waving his hand around in he's, a claw like a very believable alien. Uh, pupae or whatever that's called. <laughs> 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 totally. With so- accompanying facial expressions. <laughs> yes. Anyway, um, so, of course, finding a computer big enough and uh, with a, an output device that would actually output a 35 millimeter film in, in the late seventies was pretty tricky as these things, there was a thing, a machine called the FR80, which was a, uh, a vector film plotter and would project right onto, uh, uh, 35 mil. And so we were lucky enough to be able to use one at the Rutherford Laboratory, government-run lab in Didcot, in Ox- Oxfordshire. And we would spend weeks at a time up there getting our computer animation system working. I worked with a guy called Colin Emmett, who was a genius animator, um, a programmer, but not a self-taught programmer. He could certainly write software and i was kind of there to make sure that it worked basically <laughs> add a little sanity and um we together developed this system which uh, outputs our animation sequences to um the film plotter now it turned out that uh, i'd been brought on slightly later in the development of the animation that was going on uh, they were a bit worried that we were behind uh, in the timeline that the 20th Century Fox had uh, set for the movie. Mm -hmm. So we were called one day into the studio to show the rushes of what we'd done to Ridley Scott. And it was a big moment. They decided they could choose the mad artist, Colin, or the crazy computer scientist, Brian. And they decided I was the lesser of the two evils, I think, (laughs) to actually display to Ridley Scott. Even though I think Colin would have talked his language much more but Colin was a fabulous artist you know I think Colin could have talked to him better than I could have in many ways but anyway they they chose the geek so I went along Hmm. and as I mentioned earlier I I was being paid seven pounds an hour which in those days was an absolute fortune it's the most I (laughs) ever earned in my life and in relative terms probably even as a computer science professor never got paid that much you know so we went along and we were kept waiting seven or even eight hours at the studio on the outskirts of London. This was fabulous. I was being paid every hour I was there. <laughs> <laughs> of course, my boss, George Mallon, was completely up in arms about this because his time was worth well, a lot more than mine. <laughs> time. Hmm. But eventually Ridley Scott turned up familiar <laughs> with these things. With his, and Ridley Scott uh, is British, but he, he'd done a lot of work in the US and, of course, had uh, somewhat of what we refer to as a transatlantic uh, accent. And he'd say status instead of status, which a Brit would say. And he'd also, he'd, he'd interchange the words logic and logistics. So he was, he looked at the rushes and said uh, he wanted it uh, busier and more stuff on the screen and the logistics of this is that he wants more logic statements coming out to make it look like a computer had done it, you know. So anyway, I, I took this to heart and went back and added some graphics around the edges. And you'll see this if you zoom in. 
And I should incidentally just point out that although we did have in written in the contract that system simulation would get a, a mention in the credits, this never actually happened. But it was okay because I made sure my name was mentioned. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but I did put system BL, some numbers changing, OB, blob, because that was my login ID on the Unix system <laughs> back then. So, of course. And your nickname. And also yeah. my nickname in the rock climbing uh, fraternity. Anyway, so I put system BL, these numbers changing, OB, and then logistic status and a flag that went on, off, on. Oh, <laughs> you know, just like that. That was so a stealth credit in the movie Alien. A stealth credit in the movie, and you can see this if you watch the beginning of the movie, just up to the point, you know, before the, <laughs> before the. And did you ever get word? Was he? Was the he? Lunch will never forget. Oh, yes. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> no. And so, did you ever get word that he was happy with the final result, or? Um. No, actually, I don't think we ever got that feedback. But I mean, it except did, that I guess if it made the final cut, it then did it make was... the final cut, and it comes full screen on the big screen. And really, it was the first Hollywood movie that had any amount of computer-generated animation on it. I mean, people talk about Tron, and Tron was much more advanced in terms of the animation that was shown. But Alien preceded Tron by a couple of years, I think. Mm-hmm. Are you saying that the first computer animation in a Hollywood movie was computer animation that you made? Yeah, I guess so. And a number of others were on the team. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cool. Congratulations. <laughs> That's neat. All yeah. that means is I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> and now we have some idea how old you are. Yeah, there you go. I was very young in 1979. <laughs> So, yeah, he did all this when he was was six years years old. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, that's uh, Brian Weivel. Brian, any final thoughts on uh, Beethoven? Uh, Well, I I love Beethoven. I wish, and I have have a fabulous piano teacher at the moment, and I hope to be able to play all three movements of the Pathetique one of these days. My dream before I get to 90. You'll get that left hand under control. Mark, any final questions for Mr. Weivel? No, I don't. I enjoyed this immensely. This was a delight. Brian, thank you very much for being on our podcast, Recreative. Thank you. Thanks. Recreative, a podcast about creativity. Talking to creative people from every walk of life about the art that inspires them. And you're probably wondering, how can I support this podcast? I am wondering, Joe, how can I support this podcast? I mean, apart from being on it. There's no advertisements in this podcast. There's no tip jars. There's nothing about like buying us a coffee or anything like that. But there is a way that you can support us. And what is that? They could buy our books. And how do they find us? Recreative.ca. Don't forget the hyphen. There's a hyphen in there. Re-creative. I took your line, sorry. Well, because I stole your line. (laughs) So yes, re-creative.ca. Jinx. Oh yeah, I stole your line again. (laughs) As well, if you like what you've just heard, you could consider subscribing to the podcast. And leave a comment if you like it. Thanks for listening. Spread the word.